Well, good morning, LifePoint. So glad to be with you. It's a delight. If you have your Bible with you, and I hope that you do, uh, would you turn to the book of Ecclesiastes? We'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter one this morning. That's our starting point for today. Uh, Every year at our house, uh, we kick off the Christmas season by watching what is probably my favorite movie of all time, Frank Capra's classic film, It's a Wonderful Life, starring the incomparable Jimmy Stewart. Now, if you've seen the movie before, uh, you're probably aware that it tells the story of George Bailey, who as a young man is just dying to get out of his hometown, Bedford Falls. For George, his dreams and ambitions could not be realized in such an ordinary, unspectacular place. No, what George wanted for his life was located somewhere out there in the world, not in Bedford Falls. Well, today I want us to consider this question of gain. The same question that George Bailey wrestled with in the movie is really the question that each and every one of us, you and I, are seeking to answer, and this is the question, where can I find true, ultimate gain for my life? That is the question. It's what animates us. It's what motivates us. It's what drives us. It's why we do what we do. It's why we aspire to become a certain kind of person. We want our lives to matter And we want to know how we can make them count. So we spend our lives asking this question, where can I find true, ultimate gain? So to formulate an answer to this question from God's word, let's begin by reading from Ecclesiastes chapter one. We'll begin in verse one and read through verse 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, King in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Thanks be to God for his word to us today. 
In these verses, the preacher makes four observations about life under the sun. Four observations, if you'd like, of life in this world. Now, these verses, they're going to confront us with some things that we typically don't care to think about. And so they don't often register in our minds as often as they should. But we need to face them. We need to be confronted by them. God's word, God's wisdom requires us to come to terms with these realities. So let's do that together. Let's walk through these four observations about life under the sun found in Ecclesiastes chapter one. The first observation is that life under the sun is elusive. Life under the sun is elusive. The preacher says in verse two that all is vanity. Vanity of vanities, he says. Now this Hebrew word translated as vanity is actually a word that describes a breath, a vapor, a puff of wind, a cloud of smoke. And the use of this word is meant to show us that life cannot be grasped. In Adam, the human impulse is to take matters into our own hands, to conduct our affairs according to our own wisdom. This was the fatal sin of our first parents in Genesis chapter 3. Wanting to be God themselves, wanting to enthrone and exalt themselves as God, Adam and Eve tried to handle life on their own terms, but This is not the way it was meant to be, and disaster followed. We cannot take our lives into our own hands any more than than we can take a cloud of smoke into our own hands. Have you ever tried to hold smoke in your hands? It can't be done. Why not? Because smoke, by its very nature, is elusive. And so it is with life under the sun. It too is elusive. In verse three, the preacher reminds us that as we hope to gain the kind of life that we want for ourselves, we we toil and we work and we work and we sweat and we strive and for what? Our plans never pan out. Things never come to fruition the way that we had hoped. Why not? Because there's no real gain for us here under the sun. Life is elusive. The second observation he makes is that life under the sun is brief. It's brief. In verse four, the preacher reminds us just how quickly it is that each generation comes and goes. Human history is quite long, but by comparison, each human life is short We are, each and every one of us, you and I, a blip on the radar of history. Don't believe me? Well, think about it. In 200 years, our chances of being remembered are slim. There aren't many people who get remembered beyond a generation. The preacher reminds us of this in verse 11. He says, there is no remembrance of former things. There won't be any remembrance of the things that are later to be. No, just as a cloud of smoke arises from an extinguished match, only to to disappear, to evaporate into thin air after a second or two, so our lives under the sun are brief. We're here today, gone tomorrow. 
The third observation is that life under the sun is repetitious. It's repetitious. The preacher points out to us that the sun rises only to set and then to rise again and to repeat that over and over. The wind blows to the south and then it blows to the north and then it blows back to the south again where it came from. The waters flow into the sea only to to flow back out again so that the sea is never filled. What's he saying? He's saying that there is a fixed pattern to life in this world. And it's as true for us as people, as it is for the natural world around us. Think about it. Think about your day-to-day life, okay? We wake up every day. We get dressed. We get ready. We eat breakfast. We go to work. We go about our business at work, toiling and striving at our jobs. We, uh, come, we come home. We eat dinner. We go to bed, Then tomorrow, what do we do? We wake up and we repeat that same routine over and over again. There is no escaping the routines, the humdrum of life. We're like the Energizer Bunny beating that same drum over and over again, on and on and on. The world is fixed in an endless loop, caught in a state of repetition. The fourth observation is that life under the sun can be unfulfilling. It can be unfulfilling. We know this. In chapter two, the preacher tells us that he knows this. He shares with us the highlight reel of his personal quest for fulfillment. Now remember something. Remember verse one that we read. It strongly insinuates that the writer of Ecclesiastes is none other than the famous King Solomon or infamous King Solomon, depending on how you want to remember him. He says that he is the son of David. He says that he's the king in Jerusalem. Those are hints to us that, okay, we need to be thinking about Solomon here. And Solomon, we know, had endless resources at his disposal. You can read about Solomon's wealth in the book of 1 Kings. It's impressive. And because of his wealth, because of his royal status, as the king of Israel, he was able to try everything under the sun in order to procure for himself ultimate gain, or so he thought. There was no experiment he couldn't undertake to satisfy his hungering soul. He pursued wisdom. He pursued industry. He pursued pleasure. He pursued amusement. And he did it all at levels that you and I can't even Imagine We've never experienced anything like this. And yet, when he weighed it all against his desire for fulfillment, he found that even the very best, the very biggest that this world could offer is not enough. He concludes in verse eight, everything is full of weariness. You can just kind of feel those words land with a thud. He says that the eye can search and search for the next big thing. The ear can listen carefully for life hacks and pro tips about how to live a fulfilling life. But even if we were to gain the whole world, even if we were to get it all, it wouldn't satisfy us. In verse 10, he concludes that, really, there's nothing new under the sun. Listen, I've experienced it all, he says, and there's nothing New People are just trying the same old recycled bits to find fulfillment, hoping for different results, but they never come. It's always 
the same. Now you might be wondering at this point, now that we've kind of hashed all this out, what kind of message is this? I mean, this is starting to, uh, to sound, shall we say, a little bit nihilistic. I'm not trying to give you the gloomies. This isn't nihilism. Ecclesiastes isn't trying to tell us that life has no meaning. Far from it. As we'll see, it confirms that actually every single moment of your life matters. But it doesn't matter in the way that we so often assume, the way that we so often think it does. So if ultimate gain can't be found in this world, then in what sense does our life matter? Well, here's what Ecclesiastes will tell us. This is what I want us to walk away with today. It's the main point of the message here. Since ultimate gain cannot be found in this world, Christians live for the world to come. Since ultimate gain cannot be found in this world, Christians live for the world to come. If we consider the book of Ecclesiastes as a whole, we'll find that it actually offers three lifelong aspirations that can help us navigate life under the sun according to God's wisdom. Now, I say these aspirations are lifelong, lifelong because it actually takes an entire lifetime to grow into them. No one, no one learns the ropes overnight. We all have our fits and starts when it comes to, to living wisely. But by God's grace, we can learn to approach life according to God's wisdom. And so to encourage us and to challenge us in the right direction today, I actually want to spend the remainder of our time considering these three lifelong aspirations. So let's start with the first one. Gratefully enjoy your portion in life. Gratefully enjoy your portion in life. Your life and everything in it is a gift from a good and gracious creator. Like by no merit of your own, you wake up every day in a, life, in, in, in a, in a world that is filled with the goodness and loving kindness of God. And Ecclesiastes chapter nine commands us to enjoy it. Listen to what it says. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life. So did you catch that? Like God approves of your enjoyment. Yes, your life may be a vapor. It might be elusive and brief and repetition, repetitious and at times it might be very unfulfilling. But listen, that doesn't mean that God is stingy. The portion that he has allotted to you is filled with the good stuff of the world that he has made, the bounty of his creation. Think about it, bread, oil, wine, marriage, companionship, work, all of it is a gift. And yet the problem 
is that we tend not to see our lives this way. We, we tend not to adopt this per- perspective that it gladdens the heart of God to see us enjoying the gifts that he gives. We fail to see it that way. We, we expect things out of God's gifts that they were never meant to provide for us. And as a result, the tragedy is that we fail to enjoy them. Really, this is a worship issue for us, friends. One author says it this way. Within the created order, you can only enjoy what you do not worship. Let me read that again so we really get it. Within the created order, you can only enjoy what you do not worship. How often does a blessing in your life make you anxious or irritable? When that happens, almost every time you can trace that anxiety, that irritability, you can trace it to some idol in your heart that is being threatened. Like for me, this plays out in a very specific way. When I snap at one of my kids for for spilling a glass of orange juice, the problem isn't with my kids. Kids are gonna spill stuff. That's what kids do. That's normal. The issue is what has supremacy In my heart, my idols of comfort and convenience and wanting to be able to to curate for myself a problem-free existence, that's what's really being threatened. That's what's robbing me of enjoying my children as a precious gift from the Lord. When he alone is worshiped, things under the sun cease to be idols for our gain and instead they become Gifts for our joy and for our gratitude. That is the key to enjoying our portion in this life. The second lifelong aspiration is to fear God and obey him. Fear God and obey him. The problem of life that we encountered under the sun in chapter one actually finds its resolution at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. It says in chapter 12, verse 13, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. So after all his pondering and observing and searching, what did Solomon conclude? That our entire purpose in life consists in these two things. The fear of the Lord and obedience to his word. Notice the sweeping nature of Solomon's claim. This is our whole duty in life, he says. It's the entirety of it, the totality of it. Now, our natural self doesn't tend to think that way. Instead, we have a a tendency to kind of compartmentalize our lives and and break things up into a way that, that suits our preferences and our felt needs. Like we, we, we have our dreams and our responsibilities over in one place and we kind of button those up so nothing really messes with them. And then we kind of put our, our personal res- responsibilities front and center because really that's what's driving our life. We, we, we need to attend to those. And then we, all the way over here, we kind of place our, our spiritual obligations so that it doesn't mess with these other things too much. But if we approach our lives in this compartmentalized piecemeal fashion, we actually are living contrary to our whole purpose. Instead, we're double-minded, divided in heart, 
unable to relate to the Lord as he desires. A.W. Tozer was a famous 20th century preacher and he famously said, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Pastor Jonathan touched on this last week. But that's our single greatest problem, friends. It's our small, unworthy thoughts of God. To fear him, you must have thoughts that are worthy of him. To obey him by faith, you must respond to him in a, in a way that is worthy of who he is as God. In chapter five, Solomon tells us, God is in heaven and you're on the earth. God is the one you must fear. Do you relate to God that way? Are you, are you wholehearted, single-minded in your devotion to him? If life is nothing more than a vapor, why not spend yours on something that will outlast it into eternity? And that begins when we stop compartmentalizing our lives, when we stop holding back parts of ourselves from God so that we can keep it for us. Instead, we must embrace the whole duty of our life, which is to fear God and keep his commandments. The third and final lifelong aspiration is to live with the end in mind. Solomon's most uh, powerful and striking statement about death comes in chapter seven, verse one. Here's what he says. The day of death is better than the day of birth. That's strange wisdom. That's counterintuitive because maternity wards, we think of them as being a happier place than funeral homes. We'd rather be in a maternity ward than a funeral home. But Solomon helps us to see past the mere appearance of things. He says this to, to help us to realize that birth is all about potential. Like we stand next to a cradle and we look at the face of a newborn baby and we wonder, oh, who will they become? What will they do with their life? But the truth is, we can't measure their character. We, we cannot yet know anything about who they are as a person. All we can do is, is use our imaginations to dream up possibilities for the future. But when we stand next to a grave, and we watch the casket descend into the cold and the dark of the earth. It's a very different experience. We can actually measure a person's character. We can know what kind of person they were. We can know what their lives amounted to. You see, birth is about possibility, whereas death is about actuality. How you finish in life is actually more important than how you begin. And therefore, Solomon's wisdom actually rings true. The day of death is better than the day of birth. So with this in mind, I wanna end our time today with the sobering reminder that you and I, every one of us, at some point is going to die. Unless the Lord, of course, returns before then. But it could be tomorrow. It could be 80 years from now. None of us knows. But when that day comes for you, what will be said 
of your life? How will your days on this earth be measured? Most importantly of all, what will the Lord say of you? Will you be found justified in his sight? The way that question is answered is determined by one thing and one thing only. Whether you lived by faith in Jesus. Jesus, the true king, the true son of David. Jesus who said of himself in Matthew chapter 12, something greater than Solomon is here. And Jesus' wise word to us is this. Matthew chapter six, verses 19 through 21. He says, do not lay up treasures for yourself on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is saying that to thrive under the sun, you must live for a treasure that can only be found beyond the sun. This treasure he's speaking of will provide you with a deep and abiding joy even as you face the harshest realities of life in this world. I'm talking about the treasure of knowing Christ. Having eternal life with him is the ultimate gain, which is why Paul could say in Philippians chapter one, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul knew that while he lived, he lived for Christ, for the glory and honor of Jesus. And yet when it came time for him to die, that wouldn't be diminished because he would go and be with Christ in eternity. Can you say that for yourself? Can you say that with confidence? Have you placed your faith in Jesus? Anyone who trusts in Christ will receive eternal life and with it an eternal purpose that will long outlast your brief time on this earth. So I implore you, friends, embrace that purpose while there's still time by embracing Jesus by faith. Since ultimate gain cannot be found in this world, Christians live for the world to come. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we know that you are the ultimate gain, relationship with you, eternal life with you. And so I pray that if there's anyone watching this now who does not know you, who does not walk with you by faith, that they would turn from their sin, that the Holy Spirit would awaken within them a desire to know you and that they would be born again to life everlasting. I pray that if there are believers who are struggling with what we've talked about here today, Holy Spirit, that you would apply the truth of the word to their life and help them to walk in the obedience of faith. We pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus, amen.